All right. Well, let's um, jump in. We've been in this series in Daniel. Um, are y'all enjoying this? Daniel is such a rich book. It's such a rich book to talk about particularly cultural issues. Um, I think I'm peeking there a little bit. Um, so, Scott preached last week on Daniel chapter 3. If you weren't here, I'm just going to recap a bit of it for you. Of course, it's a well-known story. It's the story of the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what happens is the story begins with, um, make sure my clicker is working here. Yes. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon sets up this massive golden image. It's 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and commands that everyone worship it at the sound of the music that's played. And if anyone doesn't, they're going to be cast into this fiery furnace. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three Jews, they don't bow. And even though the king doesn't see it himself, some jealous, malicious wise men bring it to the attention of the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get brought in. And the king basically says, is this true? And he gives them another chance. Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? This is the only story in the book where Daniel's not a character. This one focuses on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faith. But at the end of chapter 2, Daniel's elevated to this position of being the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, the governor over the province, and he makes a request of Nebuchadnezzar that his three friends share in that governance with him. So then they're elevated as well. And so if you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, these, these four Jews, including Daniel, they're living at the top of Babylonian society. And you may be thinking, man... I could take more of this exile thing. Like, this isn't so bad. But as they soon discover, and as many of you have likely discovered, that if you have power and influence in this world, then it's usually only a matter of time until your biblical worldview is exposed to those around you. Unless you learn to blend in. Unless you learn to bow when the music is played. And respond to those cultural cues. And so... The truth is this, that if you never find your biblical worldview exposed by the behavior of those around you, then you're probably on your knees next to them. At some point, you and I should be caught standing up. So the story continues, and they say no. They say, in fact, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. It's so hot. The flames are so intense that it kills the guards who cast them in. They're in the flames. And then we read this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men bound walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come, come, here, come, out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors just gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. There is a bizarre irony in this story that the readers of Daniel are meant to see. And it's this, that in spite of the fact that the mystery is revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, the mystery of his dream, his blinding pride prevents Nebuchadnezzar from responding in a humble way to that dream. Pride that will be his undoing, which is the, what happens in chapter 4, which you'll actually hear next week from Dave Malik, wherever Dave Malik is. Um, right here, here we go. So you'll hear about his, his pride finally being his undoing in chapter 4. He hasn't learned his lesson after chapter 2, and he actually won't have learned his lesson after chapter 3. So, we find at the end of chapter 2, when he has this dream interpreted for him, he's so blown away, he says to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods, and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. He's thoroughly impressed. There's no question that Nebuchadnezzar is impressed by Daniel, but he succumbs to his pride. He dreamed about this giant image that gets smashed by a stone, which finally becomes this mountain of God's kingdom on the earth. But he also, in the middle of the interpretation, heard these words in Daniel 2. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, making you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar likes that part. You're the head of gold, O king. In fact, that seems to be his only takeaway. Literally, as we read on in the story. Something about some other kings, wind, some clay, a stone, got it. But you said I'm the head of gold, right? That's what I heard, Daniel. That's essentially Nebuchadnezzar's response. And so, chapter 3, verse 1, begins like this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. And the word for image, tselem, is the same word for image, tselem, in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has this experience. I dreamed about this image, and would you believe it? I'm the head of gold! Let's make this dream a reality. So he builds this 90-foot-tall golden statue and demands that everybody worship it. Never mind the fact that the dream includes the image getting crushed to pieces. Minor details. Right? Who, I mean, who cares? That's long after my death anyway, he probably says to himself. So he creates this image, this time entirely made of gold, because it's entirely about Nebuchadnezzar. And in the story, he builds this image, and it's worth noting the image itself is never associated with one of the Babylonian gods, like Murdoch or Bel. 
And given the connection to his dream from the previous story, the reader gets the distinct impression that this, this image is really a monument to Nebuchadnezzar himself, right? He's the maker of the image, chapter 3, verse 1 says. He, it's, there's six times in the story it's referred to as the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. It's always spoken of in association directly with the King Nebuchadnezzar himself. So to worship this golden image is to worship his masterpiece, his achievements, and perhaps even Nebuchadnezzar himself. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surely remembered that moment when Daniel came to them and said, guys, thank you for praying all night for me to get the interpretation in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And here's what I saw. He tells them about the dream. And then he says, and in this dream of this image, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold of the image God's going to destroy. They knew this going in. So when upon this happening, the very next thing that happens is Nebuchadnezzar builds a giant golden image. Guess what? They have wisdom from another age saying, I'm not about to lash myself to a sinking ship. I'll take the furnace. That's their response. And that's the wisdom from another age that we have as cultural exiles in our time. It's no different. Now, when you leave here today, you may be confronted with any number of uh, temptations that could come your way. I don't know what those will be. Um, But I can guarantee you one thing. I can promise you won't walk out those doors today and be tempted to bow down to a 90-foot statue. I'm just going to presume on that. So my preacher assumption here, um, that's probably not going to happen. So that being the case, what are the cultural idols that you're pressured to worship when the music is played? When the culture cues you, Gabriel, get on your knees. Worship this value. Worship this belief. Worship this image of success. Worship this view of the good life, this way of life. And the one I want to hit today is the authenticity, the age of authenticity that we live in. It has become a full-blown cultural idol in our moment. So let me begin by putting up a definition. Andrew Root says this. In our culture, authenticity is to see ourselves on a journey to make meaning, seeking to be loyal, often only, to what speaks to us, to what engages us, to what moves us. There's a story about this uh, Bible professor who encounters this muscle-bound young man who expressed his deep love for Jesus, and he sensed that it was genuine. They struck up a conversation, a great conversation about faith and the Bible, and at some point, Sunday morning worship came up, And the guy said that he rarely went to church. It just had none of the adrenaline of his workouts, and church was just boring. And so the guy responded, I thought you said you loved Jesus. I do. I really love Jesus, he said, with enthusiasm. And the guy said, well, let me ask you this question. Would you, do you think you would die for Jesus? The guy paused, taking it seriously. Yes, I do. I do think I would die for Jesus. So let me get this straight. You're willing to die for Jesus, but not be bored for Jesus? Now, 
when you hear it unpacked like that, you're like, wow, that is pretty distorted logic. But that expression of that guy makes absolute sense in the age of authenticity. Church doesn't engage me. It doesn't move me. It's boring. So why in the world? It's corrupting me living my authentic life. I just don't feel like myself when I'm there, right? And we have occupied this space now where the only things that are meaningful, basically, are things that move you, things that engage you, things that speak to you on your terms. Now, I wanna, I'm going to hit authenticity hard, this, this idol. Um, and so before I do, I want to give a, a number of caveats and disclaimers because I am going to beat up on it. But I want to give a number of caveats and disclaimers because I don't want you to leave today hearing things I'm not saying, right? So let me begin with some of these. Uh, I'll come back to this quote. In our culture, authenticity is to see ourselves on a journey to make meaning, seeking to be loyal, often only, to what speaks to us, to what engages us, to what moves us. Andrew Root goes on to add that in many ways this is good because it helps us stay grounded to our concrete lived experience. The truth is this, is that people who never ask serious questions about what moves them, what speaks to them, those people tend to live very detached lives, not present to themselves, right? So let's begin by saying there's lots of good here, no question. Um, Certainly, (laughs) we don't want to live unauthentically, so I'm not advocating unauthentic living by any stretch, Wearing a mask for people is a prison all its own, right? We should also add that never taking the time to discover your personality and the things that you desire, um, that's a disservice to yourself. And not only is that a disservice to yourself, I think it's a disservice to those around you. Because if you don't have any level of emotional intelligence or self-awareness, you're typically not a very safe person to be around. So, another disclaimer slash caveat. Um, Also, we should say, God made all of you, and many desires that are in you are there by God's design. So, I don't want to suggest everything you want's awful. So, eat that. Like, that's not (laughs) what I'm saying. Um, Again, please don't walk out hearing what I'm not saying. There is much that can be gained from going on a journey of self-discovery. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What refreshes me? You should be asking these questions of yourself. How has my past shaped my thoughts and behaviors in the present? That's a question not enough Christians ask and why many of us need counseling. (laughs) Um, What are my goals and dreams? Why am I defensive around that person? Right? Every time they walk in the room, I just get defensive. And I don't know why. That's a question worth asking. Why, Why do comments like that trigger me every single time? Whether it be about politics or a social issue or whenever someone makes that joke or that says this thing, I just get triggered, right? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling those things? What's my purpose? Um, How do I find meaning? This is a big one. Who loves me? And then what speaks to me? What engages me? What moves me? None of these questions are bad in and of themselves. Um, I preached a sermon, I think it was last year, on self-awareness in which I talked about many of these things. I don't retract any of it. I stand by everything I said. Um, 
In fact, I think I mentioned that people who are not self-aware are generally pretty unsafe people, especially if they're in positions of leadership. Um, basically run from those bosses. <laughs> so what's the problem, Gabriel? Are you really about to beat up on authenticity? Yes. <laughs> but hopefully that was a sufficient number of disclaimers. The problem is that in our day and age, I'm encouraged to be judge and jury when it comes to answering all those questions. And the culture at large is the executioner standing by to deal with anyone who doesn't praise the gold that I found in myself. But in reality, and I'm a big fan of reality, God is judge and jury when it comes to evaluating who you are and how you ought to live. And I should add, he's also executioner. Let's not write that out of the Bible. And the truth is this, is that there will be times that if we affirm whatever speaks to us, there will be times that evil speaks to you and you call it good. And there will be times that good does not speak to you and you call it evil. Isaiah said this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What are those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight? There was an article in Vice that came out recently that talked about this new term called radical monogamy. Spoiler alert, it's just monogamy. <laughs> um, but the idea was that in this environment of unbridled sexual freedoms, some people have come to a point after trying out a number of sexual and romantic arrangements, that they've landed on this thing called radical monogamy, the commitment to a single individual for the rest of your life. Crazy, right? But the point of the article was that it's not that they landed here because that's right and other things are wrong, but it's because after experimenting, that's what's right for them. Christian psychologist Robert C. Roberts said this, We've been led to feel that the self is sacrosanct, just as in an earlier time it was thought never fitting to deny God. So now it seems never right to deny oneself. And if you're thinking, gosh, it just feels so hard to be a Christian in this environment, well, that's because Jesus told you things like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If it feels hard in this climate, it's because it is meant to be hard, given the calling we have. There's this story I'm going to read to you from um, Live No Lies, which we've recommended several times to y'all. This is a great book by John Mark Comer. Pick it up. We recommend it here. He tells this story um, from Woody Allen and the controversy of Sun, uh, Sun Yi Previn. The heart wants what it wants, so the popular saying goes. Yet very few of us remember who made it popular. In 1992, the journalist Walter Isaacson was interviewing Woody Allen for Time magazine. The subject was Allen's notorious affair with Soon Yi Previn. There's debate as to what actually happened, but the basic story goes something like this. 
All through the 1980s, Alan was in an on-again, off-again relationship with Mia Farrow, an actress and model. Before she and Alan had begun dating, Farrow and her then-husband, Andre Previn, had adopted two children from Vietnam and then a seven-year-old girl from South Korea, Soon Yi. Over the next few years, Farrow adopted two more children. Then, she and Alan had a son together. They were an eccentric brood, regularly gracing the covers of tabloids around New York and L.A. Years went by, and Farrow and Alan's relationship began to deteriorate. One day, she found photos of her daughter, Soon Yi, in the nude, on Alan's fireplace mantle. The truth came out. Alan and Soon Yi had been sleeping together. Alan was 56, Soon Yi was 21. And to clarify, Alan had been dating her mom for years and was her functional stepdad. This was decades before Me Too. Hollywood was still in its transgressive glory days, reveling in its carte blanche cultural permission to overstep nearly every sexual boundary and take the rest of the country along for the ride. Alan went on to date then sorry, date and then marry Soon Yi. Isaacson's interview with Alan reads like a case study in postmodern ethics. Isaacson, one of the best interviewers of our day, calmly but persistently probed Alan's heart for some kind of regret or apology or even moral uncertainty. But Alan simply refused to admit that he had done anything wrong. At the very end of the interview, Isaacson asked why he did it. Alan paused then proffered his iconic line, the heart wants what it wants. This off-the-cuff saying has entered not only the vernacular, but also the belief system of our generation. It's become a kind of self-perpetuating justification for anything from adultery to chocolate cake. A kind of get-out-of-jail-free card for any behavior that falls outside the lines of moral tradition. (sighs) Jeremiah had this to say, speaking for God, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. God's saying, this is not going well for you. Life will be much better with me and in my arms. Repent, come back to me. Let's put some shoes on your feet. Let's put some water down your throat. You're dying here. But you said, it's hopeless for I've loved foreigners. I'm gonna go after them. It's the ancient version of the heart wants what it wants. You can't help who and what you love. I've loved foreigners. I'm, I'm going to go after them. It's hopeless. Right? Now, let me get a swig of water real quick. There's a fascinating, it's a fascinating historical sketch as to how we arrived at this age of authenticity in the full-blown idol that it's become. It's a historical sketch I almost gave more of. I decided to limit my comments uh, a little bit here. I'll just begin here. Uh, the Cultural Revolution of the mid-60s and 70s in many ways was a reaction uh, from many, though of course not all, baby boomers against the social conformity that they saw in their parents. Uh, the great generation associated with World War II and the 40s and 50s. Um, Andrew Root says this about the great generation. They're great to us because they did something we cannot imagine. They followed duty and obligation over the desires of self. They were mobilized by the pursuit of duty, not expressive individualism. Now, 
some people push back and say, okay, fine. I mean, you can say things like, isn't it awful that divorce rates are through the roof in ways we never saw in past generations? But even though lots of people get divorces now, in gener- generations past, people just stayed in abusive marriages for 50 years. So there's that too, right? And I think the point is this, is that we don't want to condone blind duty and obligation because commitment to blind duty and obligation above any question of what's going on in me, that oftentimes perpetuates abuse and, if the wrong people are in power, manipulation. But the expressive individualism of our time has become such the problem, almost none of us are guilty of being too dutiful. (laughs) Like, the pendulum has gone so far toward the idol of self. Um, we're, almost none of us are in danger uh, in our generation, at least we'll say, we'll say 50 and under, of being too committed, <laughs> too dutiful <laughs> by any stretch. So, um, one pro- so oftentimes this broke down during the Cultural Revolution gener- at a generational level. Uh, one protester, John, uh, or Jack Weinberg, said at a, in an interview, kind of in an offhanded way, never trust anyone over 30, you may remember. And that became kind of the repeated refrain uh, that was persistent and controversial during those years. You can't trust anyone over 30. And in the 60s and 70s, ad agencies began to push back against um, the kind of gray flannel suit wearing dutiful conformist, that father who, who provided the suburban paradise that his teenage and college son was revolting against. <laughs> and the advertising of the 40s and 50s, which basically had very, a very narrow consumer spending habit of get your home in the suburbs, um, get your Buick and your GE refrigerator, Everyone's life looked pretty similar. Um, That was replaced by targeted marketing that really pushed back against the conformity, um, social conformity that had been around before. And all of this played into the growing individualism of our culture. Pair that with a growing distrust of political institutions with scandals, religious institutions, economic institutions, family norms and values, The culture was ripe for the ideas of a guy named Sigrun Freud, especially as boomers hit college campuses at an unprecedented rate that had never been seen before. In fact, the affluence of the post-war era uh, made it such that by the time these kids had grown up and were going to college, uh, kids were going to college at a rate that had never been seen before in America, never had so many people gone to college as they began to in the 60s and 70s. So let's talk about um, Sigmund Freud for a second. This is going to be fun. I promise it's not a waste of time. Now, Freud, he, um, he died long before the Cultural Revolution, but his ideas found a hearing. They were ripe for a time that really was beyond his own lifetime. He would have loved to have been a child of the 70s. <laughs> It would have been his dream, or even a child of now. Um, So Freud talked about the mind being divided into these parts. He said, first, the deepest part is the id that's in you. And the id is, that's the site of our desires, impulses, and drives. 
It's, Freud would say, that's the most genius part of who you are, right there, your cravings. And that's what seeks pleasure and power. That thing within you that's just, I want more pleasure, I want more power. And he said, the id, it'll get you in trouble. It's unpredictable, it doesn't follow the rules. And so he likened it to kind of the inner child of sorts. Um, and so because the id, it'll get you in trouble, you'll overstep and you'll, you'll break the social norms and um, it can get, because of that, we need a babysitter. And the babysitter is basically what he called the ego. So the ego is that part of your mind that seeks to regulate the desires of the id. That's, we could say, the id's babysitter. But the idea with the ego is, like a, like a babysitter, um, a babysitter can't actually punish a child, right? All a babysitter can really do is say, hey, you better stop, because when your mom gets home, I'm going to tell your mom and dad what you did. I'm going to tell them that you did these things, you spilled that, or you, you disobeyed me, right? But it's not like a babysitter is going to start whipping your child while you're gone, right? Hopefully. Um, so the, baby, what the thing that, that happens in Freud's view of the mind, though, is um, the it's just too powerful for the ego. Even though the ego tries to kind of keep it, the it under control, it's too genius, it's too powerful. So all of us tend to have what he called the superego. And the superego makes you feel guilty for desires that don't fall in line with the social order. It shames you for even thinking about that, for even wanting that. How could you, right? Now, it's important to know that the id for Freud, that's who you really are. That's your most authentic self. But sadly, for most people, this most genius part of who they are, that's buried way under and pressed down and repressed by the superego, which shames you for wanting things like free sex and boundless power. Religion, with its oppressive moral claims, well, that serves the superego. That tag teams with the superego, right? Makes you feel, Jesus doesn't want me to do that. God, right? <laughs> that's, what, that's what empowers the superego. So for Freud, religion and these social norms that prevent us from fleshing out our desires, we gotta, we got to throw that off, right? And the superego comes in and keeps those deepest desires that you have locked away and safely out of sight. Now, Freud didn't get to live in a society with the freedoms that he would have loved to enjoy, the freedoms that we essentially enjoy now in many ways, right? John Mark Comer had this to say. For Freud, repression of desire is the basis for all neurosis. Translation, the reason you're unhappy is because people are telling you you can't do stuff. That's why you're unhappy, guys. He goes on to say, happiness has become about feeling good, not being good. The good life has become about getting what we want, not becoming the kind of people who want truly good things. That's what it means to be conformed into the image of Christ. Now, it's important to note, for a long time, psychologists have said that Freud got pretty much everything wrong. But that being the case, his ideas about the danger of repression and conformity, those are very much alive at a popular level in our culture, right? And it's trumpeted in our slogans that we use, things like, be true to yourself, live your truth, the heart wants what it wants. 
And these Freudian ideas are very much the foundation, the age of authenticity that we live in. Now, I don't want to suggest that Nebuchadnezzar (laughs) provides a perfect parallel to the modern person. At the same time, there are some parallels to his story and what we see in our time. If you think about it, Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar learns more about who he is from Daniel. But rather than responding humbly and saying something like, wow, in the end, the interpretation of my dream is really about God's critique of my reign and those like it, responding in a humble way. He just latches on to the statement that he's the head of gold. And then he takes this image and curates it for public adoration. That is not unlike the narrative of our time in so many ways. Here I am in all my one-of-a-kind glory, my loves, my tastes, my desires, my quirks, my passions. Yeah, I've, I'm not perfect. I've got my bad habits I'm working on. But even those are part of what makes me, me. And then what happens is they curate an image made of solid gold for them to present and then represent to the public based on their ongoing journey of self-discovery. Social media has not helped with this, by the way. But I want to be clear, I'm not, this is not a sermon against social media. Don't think if you're off social media, you're somehow exempt. Um, this is very much the air we breathe, the age of authenticity we inhabit. So that happens, and then what happens next? Well, then the music plays. And people are then expected to bow down to your truth, so long as it doesn't critique their truth. It's like we live in this society of Nebuchadnezzar's, all bowing down to each other's gold. But my problem is that not all my desires are holy. That's your problem too, by the way. (laughs) Oh, poor Gabriel. That's our problem. Do we recognize it? Andrew Root says this. For us today, that which is authentic is more important than that which is holy, good, or righteous. What is lame and counterfeit, that which corrupts authenticity and keeps us from being real or genuine, making us a poser or a fraud, is worse than that which is evil, demonic, or perverse. It's better to be bad but authentic than to be good but phony. Unless you think this is just the culture, this thinking of just looking inside me to find my way has always infected the people of God. Jeremiah had this to say, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself, that it's not in man who walks to direct his steps. So then what does that mean? Correct me. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. The way of man is not in himself. That's almost the most countercultural thing I can tell you. This being the case, the salvation story of our time sounds something like this. The lost 
are those who don't know what they want. The redeemed are those who've looked inside and liberated their true self from the bondage of living someone else's truth. That's the salvation story of our time. It is not the salvation story Jesus brought to the world. So then the Christian must respond in humility. In humility, guys. I would rather live God's truth than my truth. I'd rather live God's truth than your truth. I'm not about to lash myself to a sinking ship. I'd rather take the furnace. That's who we are. So that our prayer then becomes the prayer of Jeremiah. The way of man's not in himself. It's not in man who walks to direct his steps. So correct me, God. I am in desperate need of your correction, Lord. If Jeremiah said that, do you think you're exempt? He was one of the few righteous of his day. (laughs) I need correction, God. It's not all gold deep down inside. Daniel 3.28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that they were right to set aside his demand upon him because of the miraculous deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, you're right. There's a much higher demand upon your worship. Guys, we must live for God and for his eternal kingdom. You belong to God. And not unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's pressure on you. There's pressure on you to, to worship when the music is played, when the culture cues you. Gabriel, get on your knees. Worship this. Worship this value. Guys, all of this is going to pass away. The lie of salvation through self-discovery, the lie of redemption through being true to yourself, it's all going to pass away with all of its golden shimmer, and it's gonna, nothing's going to stand. All of it will be gone. The only salvation story that will stand the test of time is the gospel. You don't belong to yourself. You're God's possession. As Paul said to Titus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem for himself from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If Jesus has saved you, I promise he hasn't stopped there. He has laid his claim on you. Do you know this? You're not just saved, you're claimed. You don't belong to yourself. Now, as I said earlier, Christians aren't supposed to live unauthentic lives. Jesus didn't value that. He had a lot of negative things to say about hypocrisy, right? Grace should allow you to take off the mask. Grace should free you from the exhausting task of curating this image of gold for public consumption, It should do that. And if it doesn't, it means we haven't probably drunk in the gospel enough. If you think you have to perform in church of all places, 
We need to, and we need to receive more grace. But the truth is this. Be real people. Be genuine. Be authentic. Don't be fake. But know this. The Bible has some things to say on the topic of conformity. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. So then what should we be conformed to? Chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. While we resist the conformity to this world, your destiny, this is really good news, your destiny is to look like Jesus, to be conformed into his image. We're on the journey now, and it will, <laughs> that's, your, that's your destiny, to be like Jesus. We do preach conformity, but it's not conformity to some really great Christian. It's not some conformity to a really cool church culture I found online somewhere. It's to look like Jesus. That's the great destiny of the people of God, to be conformed into the image of Jesus. So, as we move to the table of the Lord today, I want you to remember this, that even though you've been told that you belong to yourself, and even though you've been told that (laughs) redemption is found by being true to yourself, and you've been told to glorify your desires, I say to you, as the voice of God through Holy Scripture, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. And it's into those bodies that we're going to receive the body and blood of Christ today. Receive the invitation to the table. This is the table not of the church, but of the Lord. So come all of you who have faith in Christ and join his people in this remembrance of Jesus. Come you who feel far from God and you who feel near. Come you who feel clean and you who feel dirty. Come, you that have been broken, and you who have been healed. Come, you who have been here often, and you who have not been here very many times. Come, you who have much, and you who have little. Come, people of every race. Come, women. Come, men. Come, children who know our Savior. For the sinless life that you should have lived has been lived for you by Christ. And the guilty death that you should have died has been died for you by Christ. We bring nothing to this table except faith. So come with empty and outstretched hands to receive the body and blood of Christ given for you.